Well, let's enjoy the Word of God together. If you'll grab your Bible that you brought with you today or whatever, whatever you're traveling with, your iPhone or pad or whatever it is, Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 5. This will be our first morning in chapter 5 as we continue to study God's um, amazing Word and the book of Galatians together. If you need a Bible, uh, we've got some in the back, and um, Don would be happy to share a copy of God's Word. It's an old-fashioned Bible, though it's not an iPad or any of that stuff, so be ready. There is a note page in your bulletin as well, by the way. Grab that. Uh, That will be of some help. I think, along the way. And I'd like to begin simply by reading the passage that we're going to share together this morning. It's the first 15 verses of chapter 15. If you'll follow along in your Bible, allow me to read for us. The Apostle Paul writes to his friends in Galatia, and he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We'll stop right there. Well, do you think we have enough to work with this morning? (laughs) You know, know, if you do some of your devotional time and you kind of read ahead and try to figure out where we're going to be next on a Sunday morning, um, you probably were wondering about this passage a a little bit. But I am trusting that the Holy Spirit who wrote this for us through Paul's pen is going to bring it to life for us and make make it relevant and real to us. Amen and amen. Yeah. Many years ago in Boston, there was a pastor by the name of A.J. Gordon, One day he met a little boy out in front of uh, his church, the church that he pastored, and the boy was carrying a a rusty bird cage, and several little birds were fluttering around on the bottom of this cage as if they knew that that their end was pretty much near at hand. And, And Pastor Gordon says to the little boy, he says, Son, where did you get those birds? Well, I trapped them out in the field. Well, what are you going to do with them? And the little boy says, Well, I'm going to take them home, and I'm going to play with them and have some fun with them. What will you do with them when you're done playing with them? And he thought for a moment, and he said, well, I I guess I'll feed him to an old cat that hangs around our house. (laughs) Pastor Gordon asked the little boy how much he would take for the birds and the cage. Mister, you don't want these birds. These are just old field sparrows. They can't sing or nothing, he said. 
I'll give you $5 for the birds and the cage. The boy didn't, didn't hesitate. He said, oh, but you're making a bad deal, but I'll take it. Well, their business transaction now done, the boy went whistling down the street, $5 richer and obviously feeling like he had come out on the better end of the deal. And Pastor Gordon, well, he took the cage out behind the church. He set it on the ground. He opened the door, out flew this, the birds in a rush into freedom, chirping wildly as they went. On Sunday morning, Pastor Gordon took the rusty old bird cage, now empty, to the church with him, and he set it right up on front next to the pulpit, uh, and he would use it as his opening illustration for the sermon topic of that day, which was the subject of redemption. Now, one definition of redemption says that it is the payment of a price in order to secure the freedom of another. Well, after telling the story behind the birdcage, Pastor Gordon says, that little boy told me that those birds couldn't sing. But when I opened that cage door, I'm almost certain that I heard them singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. The payment of a price in order to secure the freedom of another. You know, if you've been with us in our verse-by-verse explore of the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, who were, by the way, uh, non-Jewish baby Christians whom Paul had introduced to faith about a year and a half before writing this letter. They are living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey today. If you've been with us, you know that this truth, the payment of a price to, in order to secure the freedom of another, has been one of the really powerful driving forces that has relentlessly pushed this Galatian letter forward. Through our faith in what Jesus has done for us, paying our sin debt by his death on the cross and rising from the dead in demonstration of his power over sin and the grave, this morning we are free when our faith is placed in him. Amen? Amen. Free from condemnation, free from eternal separation from God, and we are free, brothers and sisters, from ever having to try to earn the love, the acceptance of God by our own good works, our own good deeds, our, our own good performances, our exemplary keeping of God's rules and commands. God's rules and commands are very important. We're not setting them off to the side. But the keeping of God's rules and commands is not how we become sons and daughters of the king. It's not how we become inheritors of heaven and the riches of eternal life, is it? It is through our faith in Jesus alone. It's because of what Jesus has done. Several mornings back, we lingered uh, on a verse out of Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. You may want to just jump right back there. We'll put it on the screen for you as well. How does it read? Christ, what? Redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then we read in verse 24 of the same chapter that we are justified by faith in Jesus. Justified. What does that mean? It means to be pronounced not guilty, fully righteous by God in the court of heaven. That's what that word means. And so that's what we read here. We have been redeemed, bought at a price, 
And we have been declared righteous before God by virtue of what Jesus has done when we place our faith in him. Redeemed and justified. And so we've come to this this understanding that our salvation is really very, very simple. It boils down to an equation. Jesus plus what? Nothing else equals everything that really matters. And this is the pure gospel. Who Jesus is, what he has done, appropriated into my life by grace through faith. That's the pure gospel. When anything is added to purity, what does it do to that thing? It makes it less than pure, right? Well, the Judaizers, the the false teachers, the Jewish false teachers who were preying on these baby Christians in Galatia that Paul had given the pure gospel to, they are contaminating that pure gospel. They're changing the gospel. They're adding the Mosaic law to Jesus along with a mountain of other Jewish rituals and customs and traditions. And they're saying that Jesus plus other things that you do saves you. That's the landscape of this letter. Paul says, no way, no way. That's not salvation. That's legalism. But this false teaching was confusing the Galatians their understanding of how their salvation really works. And and so was it Jesus plus nothing? Or is it religious rule-keeping that that God wants from them? That's what the question on the table. So Paul once more goes toe-to-toe with these false teachers for the sake of his dear friends and for the sake of the true gospel as we step now into chapter 5. And he passionately says, again, verse 1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Set us free from having to do rules and rituals and traditions in order to gain God's acceptance. That's the heart of false religion. Paul says, no, Jesus set you free from that. Stand firm, therefore. Put your feet solidly rooted on the ground of that truth and do not submit again to that old yoke of legalistic slavery. You are free. Are you free? Some of you are. Are you free? Yeah, Yeah, okay, great. (laughs) All right, I'm free. You're free through faith in Jesus. Now remember with me as we step uh, into chapter 5 that this begins the section of Paul's letter where he's going to lay out the practical implications of our freedom. The, the Jesus plus nothing true gospel. What are the practical implications of that truth? Chapters 1 and 2, he, he shared his own faith journey, how he came to embrace the true gospel. Chapters 3 and 4, he drills down deeply, proof after proof after proof, doctrinal teaching, a heavy teaching section in 3 and 4 for why Jesus only is the only way. And now he comes to this place in chapters 5 and 6 where because the truth is Jesus plus nothing, Uh, because that is the truth, then here's what it means for your life. Here's here's how it impacts you Galatians, you Galatian believers, but it's also how how these truths impact us IBCers in a practical way that will make a difference in our lives. And so we step into this new section as we step into chapter 5. If you look at your note page, in the opening verses now of chapter 5, Paul will say, my dear, dear Galatians, if you follow the lies of the Judaizers, if, if you choose enslavement to legalism, here are four practical truths that you really need to know. First, 
Jesus will be of no value to you at all. You need to know that. If you want to go this way, you need to know that. Verse 2. Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, we read that verse and we say, wow, that word, circumcision, it just kind of came rifling out of, in out of nowhere and into my Bible. What is that? Did I read that right? Yeah, church family, we read it right. The word is circumcision. This word uh, catches us off guard, doesn't it? We're not, we don't find this word making its way into our vocabulary every day. It's not in my vocabulary every day. But what is kind of, uh, uh, kind of catches us off guard does not catch off the Galatians in the first century. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down here in this moment with this word. And I know you don't want that either, but I don't want to just jump over this word because it might collide with our, our cultural sensibilities. We wouldn't be very good students of the word if we did that, if we just jumped over the ones that were a little tough to talk about. So let's talk about this word for just a moment. Uh, confusing to us, so that it would appear here maybe in Paul's argument, but, but certainly it fits uh, in the mind of any of those readers in the first century. The Jewish people were often, um, and in our Bibles many times, they are referred to simply as the circumcised. And you would be aware of that if you've read much of your Bible. You know the Jewish people are often referred to by this term. In turn, all who are not ethnically Jewish uh, are referred to often as the uncircumcised. Circumcision was given by God to Abraham and his descendants as a distinctive outward symbol or sign of his special covenant promise and his relationship to them. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 17. God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And a part of the sign that will set you apart will be circumcision. As well, this sign of circumcision was to represent uh, the people's desire to, to put off or to put away from themselves sin and to be fully and completely devoted to him. God would sovereignly and graciously bless them and through them uh, he would bless the entire world as he brought Jesus through their line, through their, the, the, the nation of the Jewish people. And so circumcision was a sign of a unique special relationship that God would have with Abraham and his descendants. Well, like just about everything else, you, you give enough time and things get twisted. So over time, the Jewish people came to see this sign of circumcision, which was very special, uh, not as just having some merely symbolic value, but to them it came to have great spiritual value in itself. As a circumcised Jew, you were the called. You were the chosen. You were the, the true people of God. You were the apple of his eye. You are the favored ones. The outward sign over time was given a spiritual weight and a spiritual merit and value that God never gave it. The false gospel Judaizers took this and, and they were saying to the, to the non-Jewish Galatians that, you know, faith in Jesus, although it's important... It's not enough to bring you into full and complete salvation 
relationship with your God. You need to do this, among many other things that are in the Mosaic Law. They would need to add Jesus to their earnest devotion and follow the Mosaic Law if they really want to be saved. Circumcision was the centerpiece of the Mosaic Law. In essence, the Galatians would have to finish. They would have to perfect. They would have to complete the salvation work of Jesus by their own good works, their own efforts, which would require circumcision. Jesus plus something else. Paul says again, verse 2, Look, look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you at all. True faith in Jesus means you realize that you bring nothing to the table except your sin when you come before God. You acknowledge that you can't save yourself or, or, or make contributions to your salvation. Jesus did everything, and God accepted what he did for you, and all he can do, you can do now is receive his gift, his grace gift, through simple faith. The sacrifice of Jesus, perfect and complete, says Paul, can be of no advantage or value to anyone who is trusting in anything else except Jesus. Good works, circumcision, anything, those things will stand between you and Jesus, between you and a pure faith. Choose enslavement to legalism and realize Jesus will be of no value to you. Second, Paul says, realize that you must live a perfect life if you're going to go this way. If you're going to look to the Mosaic law to save you, then you better do that perfectly. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the what? The whole law, not part of it, the whole thing. Since God is sinlessly perfect, his standard of righteousness is sinless perfection. But that's not us, is it? (laughs) That doesn't describe me, that's for sure. We're born with a sin nature. We talked about this last time together. We can never in this life live the perfect law of God, ever, right? We can't do it. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quotes God out of the Old Testament. Do you remember these words? For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law and do them. If we're going to base our salvation on on our good rule keeping, Paul would say, we can't just pick and choose the rules we're going to keep. It's an all or nothing deal. James chapter 2 verse 10 will add, For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point, just one point, has become accountable for what? For all of it. We can't keep God's law perfectly. And so that is why God made our salvation in Jesus a gift, right? He made it a gift because he knew we couldn't keep it, keep the law. We need a gift, and we accept the gift by faith, apart from legalistic rule keeping. you have any idea we might go for some great verses to to declare that truth? How about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? Verses you know well, in fact, so well. Let's just read them right off the screen together. Would you do that with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
not a result of works so that no one may boast. And we say amen and amen. We don't have to keep the law perfectly. We receive the gift of the one who did keep it perfectly. So third, choose enslavement to legalism and realize you've been cut off from Jesus. Verse 4, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And clearly Paul here is alluding to the imagery of circumcision by his choice of words. Some Christians have, have read verse 4 and have panicked, thinking that, well, this is a verse that talks about how I could lose my salvation. But Paul's not talking about our security in Jesus at all in this moment. Remember Jesus' words from John chapter 10. Brother, sister in Jesus, remember these words. Jesus says this. He's talking about you and me. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Is that security? That is our security in Jesus. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Are you safe in Jesus today? You're free and you're safe through faith in Jesus. Paul here in verse 4 is not talking about salvation security. He is contrasting the works salvation of the Judaizers with the faith salvation of the true gospel of Jesus. If anyone tries to, to mix works and law and human effort with the grace of God that is received by faith alone in Jesus, they cut themselves off from the grace principle. You, you've separated yourself from the grace principle. And Jesus, again, uh, as in verse 2 earlier, is of no value, he's of no advantage to a sinner who insists on living in the realm of performance since Jesus lives in the realm of grace, right? And that's Paul's point at the end of verse 4. There on your page, choose enslavement to legalism and realize that you have rejected God's grace. It's a big deal here. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul is saying that the Judaizers have been exposed to the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus, but they've rejected that grace, practically speaking, by putting their trust in themselves and what they can do to impress God. What hope is there, Paul asks, for someone who does that? They, they've tasted the grace of God, but they've not eaten it. It's been on the tip of their tongue, but they've not taken it into their life. It reminds me of a, of, of a terribly sobering passage that comes out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Check this out. This is, this is heavy stuff here. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, in other words, they know about the truth of Jesus, that describes the Judaizers. They've been made aware of God's grace in Jesus. It is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, but they've not eaten it, and they've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've witnessed the power of the Spirit of God in, their, in the lives of Christians, but they've not received that power themselves yet. And they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, which offers salvation without human works and the powers of the age to come, and then they have fallen away to trust in themselves and in their own human works, their own human efforts. It is impossible, 
to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The writer is simply saying such persons have come to the very doorway of grace, but then they've chosen not to go in. Fallen away into their own trusting in self works religion. You're severed from Christ. You would be you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Could Paul be any more clear here about the practical implications of, of legalism as a as a way to do life with God? Could he be any more clear? There, there's not two ways, is there? There's not many ways to God. There is one way, and his name is Jesus. To step away from Jesus as our sole sufficiency for salvation is to abandon divine grace. We're either clothed in the righteousness of Jesus by faith or we are clothed in our own unrighteous, sinful works rags. In fact, right this moment, every person in the world is in one of those two places. You realize that? In one of those two places, clothed either in the righteousness of Jesus by faith or clothed in unrighteous, sinful works rags. So let me ask you, how are you dressed this morning? I don't mean this. I mean, how are you dressed? Are you dressed in the righteousness of Jesus by faith in him? Yes? (laughs) We'll go with that. Sure, absolutely. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait for Jesus. We're clothed, but we wait for him. We look to Jesus because in him alone we're justified. Pronounced not guilty, fully righteous in the court of heaven. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The Judaizers are making a big deal of this outward symbol of Jewishness. And Paul says, I'm telling you, it's no deal. It has no bearing on your standing before God. Circumcision, no circumcision, it's a non-issue. My Galatian brothers and sisters, salvation is and always will be only by grace through faith in Jesus. That's all. Amen. Amen. Responding to the love of God who has sent his son to die in our place. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to do that because he loves us. Motivated as he is by his love for us, we Accept the gift. Faith working through love. God's love for us. More on that in a moment. Paul continues, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up? Now, this is obviously a rhetorical question because Paul knows exactly who tripped them up, right? That's not a mystery to him at all. Now, you probably, if you've read your Bible, uh, especially the New Testament very much, you probably know that Paul was quite fond of using athletic analogies to convey spiritual truth. In fact, his favorite analogy was to picture a runner on a, on a race course. And the Christian in his mind was like a runner in a race running towards eternal life. You were running well. He says, who who tripped you up? You know, I read these words and I immediately recall, and this will date me, but I recall the 1984 Olympics when America's female long-distance champion, gold medal hope, was a gal by the name of of Mary Decker. You remember that name? 
Well, if you remember that name, you're just old like me. (laughs) Mary Decker had trained most of her life for this one day, the 3,000-meter finals of the Olympic Games, 1984. But as she was in the lead, in red there on the inside of the track, another runner cut over and in front of her and tripped her. And she goes tumbling off of the track. And the cameras catch two iconic images that tell the entire story without words. She looks on in disbelief as the field keeps running down the track and she is lying there in the background and you can see the anguish in her face as these others are continuing their dream, right? And then an official attempts to assist her in her anguish and and you can just see Decker as she looks forward, she realizes that her gold medal dreams are gone. They're over. Paul may have envisioned something similar as he thinks of his friends in faith here. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who tripped you up? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, verse 8. This works-based gospel doesn't come from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. It, It only takes a tiny lie to completely undo the Jesus plus nothing equals everything true gospel. You had a single human component to the cross of Jesus, whether it's circumcision or or anything else, and and you've lost the, the race of faith. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And here, to me, Paul sounds like a coach. He's coming right alongside and he's saying, I know you're not going to buy into that Judaizer stuff, that, 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 that false gospel. I have confidence in you. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's resting in the, in the, in the knowledge that God is fully aware. He's going he's to right the wrong. He's going to take care of this. It's not up to Paul to fix it. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Apparently, the Judaizers were actually lying to the Galatians about Paul, telling them that he preached circumcision as part of salvation's requirement. Well, he never did that. In that case, Paul says, the offense of the cross has been removed. If I'm actually preaching the rule-keeping ritual message of circumcision, why do I continue to be hated by the Judaizers and persecuted by them? That makes absolutely no sense. You know me. You know what I've endured for the sake of Jesus. You know the persecution that I've experienced at the hands of the Judaizers. They're lying to you. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And we go, whoa. Whoa! Did I? Wow! Yeah, that is probably the strongest single statement that Paul makes anywhere in any of his writings. Some think that Paul lost his temper here, (laughs) and that he's wishing a cruel punishment on the Judaizers. Kind of like, hey, they like circumcision. Well, I wish they would slip and cut the whole thing off. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that. In Galatia, there was a pagan deity, a nature goddess whose name was Sibuli. And the Galatians would have known about her, intimately known about her 
has a goddess in their pantheon. A requirement for the male priests of this idol-worshiping cult was that they had to be castrated as a sign of their complete devotion to her. The priests had to become eunuchs. The Galatians knew this. They knew it well. And so Paul is saying, listen, if the Judaizers insist on circumcision as a part of how you win God's approval, then why don't they go all the way and castrate themselves in the supreme act of devotion that will really impress God? If salvation really is about outward signs and human works and, and efforts as they claim, I wish they would, would really practice what they preach and just go all the way, just like the priests at Sibylle. Surely God will be impressed. If they do that, he's pointing out the inconsistency of the Judaizers' message. They don't go all the way. Jesus went all the way, didn't he? Choose enslavement to legalism and realize that it it goes nowhere. It's a a dead-end road. It's a dead-end life. There's no freedom in it. Paul in chapter 5 began by saying, For freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not again submit to that yoke of slavery. Choose legalism and be enslaved. But if you flip your note page over, if we choose Jesus by faith alone, we live what? We live free, don't we? We live free. We live free in the love that God has for us without any fear. We live free to obey God because we love Jesus and we live free to love others like Jesus loves. If we return back again to verses 5 and 6, I said we would would come back here. Paul says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only what? Faith working through love. Our faith responds to the love that God has for us in Jesus. And from that place of his love for us, we do whatever we do for God. But it's from the place of love. The Judaizers had it backwards. They believed that if they did enough of the good things that God desires, then God would love them and accept them and want them and save them. And so it was, it was an upside-down gospel. Consequently, their relationship with God wasn't a relationship of freedom. It was a relationship of fear. Enslavement to the law produces fear, doesn't it? Did I do enough? Did I, did I, did I do it good enough? Did I do it for long enough? Did, did I miss something? Is God pleased with me? You never know. Under legalism, faith in Jesus crushes that fear. It replaces that fear with freedom on your note page we'll put it up on the screen incredibly powerful passage you know it it's first john 4 15 to 19 here's how it reads whoever confesses that jesus is the son of god abides in him and he in god so we have come to know and to believe there's the faith the love that god has for us god is love and whoever abides in love abides in god and god abides in him Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have what? Confidence. When? For the day of judgment. Because he, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Man, oh man. Here the Apostle John's entire point is that because God has loved us through Jesus and his death and resurrection and and not because of anything that we do or don't do and we have placed our faith in that love of God for us through Jesus, we are not afraid today to stand before a holy God. Are you afraid to stand before him? You shouldn't be. If you're in Jesus, you do not need to be afraid to stand before God. And we all will stand before God, won't we? Scriptures are very clear. Hebrews 9.27 says we will stand before God, every one of us. But we don't fear because Jesus bore God's righteous judgment for us so that we would never have to do that. Jesus clothes us in his perfect righteousness and so clothed, We live in freedom, not in fear. Our faith working through the love that God has for us brings us freedom, not fear. At the same time, our faith working through the love we have for God leads us to obey him. Not because we're trying to win his approval, but because we want to, because we know that's what will please him. We serve him because we love him. We're free to obey God. The Judaizers got this wrong too. They thought that if salvation was by grace alone, and it really was Jesus plus nothing else added, then the Galatians, as well as you and me, we would simply use the grace gospel like a get-out-of-jail card. We would go out and we would send up a storm. We would do everything that we wanted to do. We'd live the way we wanted, totally disregarding God's will and his commands because Jesus will take care of it in the end, right? That was their fear, that we would abuse the grace gospel. But nothing could have been further from the truth. That was never Paul's message. It was never his expectation that he had for his friends. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the what? For the flesh. Anyone who would use the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for them as a ticket to live for themselves doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, there on your note page. For this is love for God to obey his what? His commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Why do we obey God? Why do you obey God today? Why do you do his word? Because you love him, right? Not in order to win his love. You do it because you love him who loved you first. John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he's the one who what? Who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If we really understand the love that our heavenly Father has for us, fellow Christian, it will be our longing to respond to that love with obedience. First Peter chapter 2, verse 16. The Holy Spirit will tell us this. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God from the place of love for him, right? Yeah. So choose Jesus by faith, live in freedom, 
free to live without fear, free to love the Lord out of obedience uh, to him. And then, lastly, Paul says, free to love others like Jesus loves us, humbly and sacrificially. Verse 13, one more time. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, do what? Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. You know, one of the most practical ways that our freedom in Jesus expresses itself is in the way that you and I relate to each other in the life of our church and and as we do life together here on the hill and wherever that is for you. Since, since Paul will get into this much more in the verses that are just to come, 16 and following, we won't get into this very far. But if you remember the occasion when a crafty lawyer asked Jesus what Jesus thought was the greatest commandment, Jesus answered him by quoting the Old Testament. And you remember what Jesus said? The greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he chased it with another statement, another law, another command. What was it? And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two are the greatest commandments. We love God, and as we love God, what else do we do? We love each other. Jesus, in his parable of the Good Samaritan, pointed out that our neighbor is anybody who has a need whose need we know about, whose need we have some ability to meet. It will often be inconvenient. It will oftentimes be unpleasant, perhaps expensive. It will call for humility at times. It will call for sacrifice. It will call for all the things that Jesus did for us, right, if we're going to love each other really well, that freedom to love each other well. In uh, John chapter 13, the very end, Uh, of that chapter. On the night before Jesus was crucified, here's what he said. A new commandment I give you, that you what? You love one another. Just as I have what? Loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Church family, how are the people of our community going to know that Jesus is real? How's that going to happen? It's going to happen as they see us loving each other, right? In all the manifest ways that that can happen. As I say, we're going to get into what that looks like much more next time. But for now, which have you chosen? Enslavement to legalism, which leads to nowhere? or faith working through the love that God has for us in Jesus, which leads to freedom. Which have you chosen? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus? Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for walking with us through this passage. Clint asked you to do that for us earlier, to take us into this spot and unpack it for us in a way that would be relevant for us. And, and we really have been able to see the, the emptiness of legalism as a way to live and how foolish that is, and we don't want that. And if there would be anybody in this room who has been living like that, trying to win your favor, I pray that that ends today.
pray that, that they would replace rule keeping with Jesus. And if that be you, if I'm talking to you today, don't leave without talking to me or some friend about how to have Jesus in your life. He so wants to be in your life. Lord, we do, uh, we do cherish our freedom in Jesus. We're so glad there's no fear today for us. We could stand before you in the next moment and not be afraid. Thank you for that freedom from fear. Thank you for the freedom to obey you, to, 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 to do your, your law by, by the place, from the place of love and not trying to earn your love. And thank you for each other. Help us prepare our hearts to unpack that truth even more of what it means to love one another. And we'll say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.